We've, uh, we've done series in the past, I think on Mark, Luke, John. We've never done one on Matthew, to my knowledge. So it's a lot of good stuff in here. I'm looking forward to studying and hearing what God has to say to us. Um, today we'll be reading verses 1 to 17 of Matthew chapter 1. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of uh, Perez and Terah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Ebiud, and Ebiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elud, Elud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathen, Mathen the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. <laughs> A lot of names, huh? Um, so is it just me or, I don't know, I've watched a number of previews. You know, you're watching a football game or, or whatever. You're watching uh, previews for movies coming up. And it seems like it used to be I would watch a preview and it would be like, okay, I really like this movie or maybe I don't, it's not necessarily for me, but I can kind of see the storyline. Recently, especially around Halloween, I've seen these previews for movies and some of them it's like, okay, I'd like to see this, but others are like, what is, what is this? Like, what is happening? Do people actually watch these movies? And it's just like baffling what the story is, what the plot is. And, you know, you watch the whole minute-long uh, preview and you have no idea what the movie is about whatsoever. Apparently, some people like them, some people watch them. Maybe I'm just getting old, who knows. Uh, but you think about it, you know, and maybe you find a movie that you like. You watch a preview, you like the movie, and uh, maybe it's everything that you thought it was going to be. It's a great movie, and, and it's awesome. Uh, maybe sometimes you watch a movie, and maybe it's okay, and, but maybe it's not quite what it was cracked up to be. You know, I see that you know, sometimes you know, you'll have like a kid's movie that's kind of funny, and you'll see these funny parts in the preview, and then you watch the actual movie, and you realize like those were the only funny parts in the whole movie. Or sometimes you'll watch a preview, and then the movie that you watch is nothing like what you thought it was going to be. For example, I saw this movie preview on uh, Netflix recently called Mr. Harrigan's Phone. Now, I thought this movie was going to be about, like, this older gentleman who passes away, and then he kind of leaves messages on his phone or kind of clues to his fortune or some kind of cute thing like that. 
It wasn't anything like that. Um, it's about this old man, billionaire, kind of a nasty old man, and this young boy kind of uh, develops a relationship with him, a friendship, and uh, this older man apparently has the ability to kind of like cast spells on people, but it's not really clear, and these people that cross him end up dead. And then after, uh, after this, guy, this older gentleman dies, this boy is still able to talk to him on his phone and text him. And then, like, this boy, the, the people who are mean to this boy end up dead. It's just, like, the craziest, weirdest movie I've ever seen in my life. And now some of you are saying, well, that's my favorite movie. I'm sorry to say you're weird. <laughs> but we love you anyways. But sometimes that happens, right? We watch a preview of a movie, and then it's not exactly what we thought it was going to be. And as we look at the book of Matthew, um, I think it's kind of a preview to what's coming. And for those who are not Christians, maybe we look at this story and it's like, it's a bad preview to maybe a bad story, you know, if we're not believers. If we are believers, maybe we look at it and we think, it's a bad preview to a good story. I mean, we know there's a lot of good stuff that's coming. We know that the, the Sermon on the Mount is coming. We know that Jesus is going to do incredible miracles. He's going to walk on water. He's going to... Um, go up to the Mount of Transfiguration, he's going to die on the cross, he's going to rise again, he's going to give the Great Commission at the end of the book of Matthew. So we know it's a good story, but maybe we feel like the preview is not all it's cracked up to be. It's a bad preview for a good story. And I think the reason that we think that is because I think as, you know, Americans living thousands of years after it was written, I think we miss a lot of the cultural background. And yeah, there's a lot of names in here, and it seems kind of irrelevant, seems kind of boring, it seems like a bad preview, but this preview is really rich. It's really deep. It's really incredible what Matthew does here in this opening chapter, and I hope that we can look at this story, or look at this uh, opening preview and see kind of a picture of who Jesus is. And my goal today is that as we look at this preview, that we would see Jesus as he is, and that we would leave more in love and more in awe uh, of Jesus than when we came in here. And that's kind of a scary task because that's not something I can do. That's something only the Holy Spirit can do. And I can encourage you. I can encourage people in the faith, encourage us to walk in godliness, but only God can create that kind of awe in our hearts. And that's my hope and that's my prayer today is that God would uh, move us and see, see Jesus as he is. Uh, A.T. Pearson lamented about the same thing of his own inadequacies in communicating uh, the awesomeness of Christ this way. He says, unsearchable literally means riches that can never be fully explored. You can form no estimate of them and never get to the end of your investigation. There's a boundless continent, a world, a universe of riches that still lies before you when you have carried your search to the limits of possibility. I sink back exhausted in the vain attempt to set before my congregation the greatest mystery of grace that I've ever grappled with. I cannot remember in 30 years of gospel preaching ever to have been confronted with a theme that more baffled every outreach of thought and every possibility of utterance than the theme that I have now attempted in the name of God to present. So as we look at this passage, I hope that we see Jesus as it is and as he is, and Matthew has a lot to say about Jesus in this passage. But before we get there, I think we need to know a little bit about a genealogy. Now, sometimes when we think about a genealogy, we think about a family tree. 
And if you were thinking about a family tree, you know, maybe you, you know, put your great-grandparents and then you have the, the family tree of, like, everybody that's related to them and how, you know, everybody comes from them. Um, a genealogy was different in the ancient world. Almost always a genealogy was selective. They didn't include every possible family member uh, that they could include. And so sometimes people will look at genealogies like this and they'll get caught up in like, oh, why didn't he include this person or why didn't he include this person? Or they'll compare it to, uh, for example, there's a genealogy in the book of Luke uh, where um, Luke traces out Jesus' biological lineage. And so there's some differences there. And sometimes people will look at those and think, well, why isn't it exactly the same? Well, the reason it's not the same is because they're almost always selective. They're trying to communicate a point. They're trying to show in Matthew that he's trying to show the royal lineage of Christ. And I think that we do the same thing. I mean, we think about it as a family tree, but we do the same thing, right? Um, let's say you were going to do a search, like an Ancestry.com search or something like that. And then you wanted to communicate what you found to your friend. If you're going to communicate that to your friend, what would you highlight? Let's say you were related to a famous person. That's what you would kind of highlight. Let's say, you know, you find out you're related to George Washington. You might say, well, my mother's sister's great-great-great-grandfather's brother's sister's brother, whatever, is related to George Washington. It would be all in relationship to that famous person, George Washington. You wouldn't, if you're communicating that to someone, you wouldn't list out every relative that you have and every ancestor that you would have. You'd, it would only be in relationship to George Washington. And that's what the writers of scriptures often do. It's not that they're incorrect. It's not that they're mistaken. They're communicating selective genealogy to show the point. And in this passage, Matthew's trying to communicate that Jesus has a royal lineage. So what is, Jesus, what is Matthew communicating about Jesus? The first thing that he communicates is that Jesus is uniquely qualified. He calls him the son of David and the son of Abraham. The first thing we see that Jesus was a son of a human being. That makes him uniquely qualified in that, one, he can identify with our weaknesses, and also that he's uniquely qualified to pay the penalty for our sins. In order to pay the penalty for our sins, he had to be 100% God and 100% man. He had to become like us so that he could take our punishment, but he also had to be God so he had the purity and the legitimacy to be able to pay that sacrifice. And so he becomes like us. He becomes the son of man. And we think about that, and it's an incredible thing that Jesus did in coming to the earth, leaving the throne room of heaven and becoming a human being. There's a man by the name of Chris Rotunda, and he did something that was uh, kind of crazy. His family, his girlfriend, everybody tried to talk him out of it. Uh, but the local uh, animal shelter where he lived was facing a st staffing and budget crisis. And so he wanted to kind of bring light to the conditions at the, at the shelter. And so he decided that he was going to live as a dog for 10 days. And so he got his rice cakes and energy bars and water and a sleeping bag and maybe a few things to read. And he just went into the shelter, holed himself up with some dogs, and just hung out there. And he told the people, the, the, the staff there, to treat him like a dog. And so he was taken out for an hour a day. He had to go to the bathroom outside. It was just crazy. He said this, shelters are often overlooked. I kind of wanted to wake up the community a little more and put myself in the position of these animals to understand how solitude gets to you and how to deal with it. 
It's very difficult, and it gets you a different perspective. It, it was incredibly hot. He couldn't shower. There were bugs. The smell of urine filled his nostrils. And the loud barking of up to 50 dogs kept him up all night long. That's an incredible thing to do, but he became like a dog so that he could bring light to the issue at hand. And that's kind of similar to what Jesus did. He left the throne room of heaven. He became like us. He took our infirmity on himself. He became a human being so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so he's uniquely qualified in that he's 100% God, 100% man, and he became like us. But Matthew goes further and he says he's the son of Abraham and he's the son of David. Now you think about Judaism in the ancient world and Judaism today, and those are kind of the top two people, the top two heroes in Judaism. Abraham was kind of the progenitor, the beginning, uh, the beginning of the, the, the Jewish people per se. He was the one that God came and, and told him, go to a land that I'll show you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Uh, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so he's kind of the founder of Israel in a sense. And then you have David who was Israel's greatest king. Uh, he was a man after God's own heart. He was, you know, the man who prepared for the building of the temple. He was the man who kind of brought in the kind of the golden age of, of Israel's history. And so they're the top heroes in Judaism. And uh, Matthew says they're in the, that, that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. And so he's in their, in, in their family tree, so to speak. He's in their genealogy, but he's also kind of the new and improved version of them. He's the greater Abraham who left his homeland to come to the earth, to live a, a sinless life, die on the cross so that we might have life. He's the new and better David who, la, who, who lives a, a life of justice and righteousness, who reigns forever and sacrificed for his people. And so Jesus is uniquely qualified that he's a human being. He's 100% God, 100% man. He's the true and better Abraham, and he's the true and better David. And so Matthew says he's uniquely qualified. But he goes further and he says that Jesus is the beginning and the end. Jesus is the beginning and the end. The statement that Matthew opens up with in this passage, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, is actually a statement that's pretty profound. The word for genealogy is actually the Greek word genesis. You know, same word as genesis in, in the beginning of the Bible. So in the it, it, the, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ is literally what it says. And it's incredibly found, uh, profound in the fact that just like in the book of Genesis, God was creating something, in Christ, God is creating a people. In Genesis, he's creating the world. In, in Matthew, in Jesus, he's creating a people. And so Jesus comes to the earth, lives a sinless life, dies on the cross, rises again, and he declares this great commission, and he creates a people for God, people who would worship God. And so it's a genesis, a new beginning, a new way to relate with God in the coming of Jesus Christ. We also see something else that's quite interesting. This phrase, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, or the genealogy of Moses, or genealogy of whoever, uh, this phrase appears quite often in the Old Testament. Um, and I'll just give you one example, but there's several examples like this. Uh, in Genesis chapter 5, it says this, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. 
When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, Seth were 800 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and then he died. So, there's a number of other examples like this, but there's a big difference between the way that the, the Old Testament portrays the genealogies and the way that Matthew does. And the difference is, in this passage and others in the Old Testament, we see the book of the genealogy of Adam, and then we see the descendants of Adam after that, his children. But here in Matthew, we see the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and we see his ancestry, not his children. And again, I think the point may be profound, again, that in a sense, Jesus is the son of David, he's the son of Abraham, but he's also the source of Abraham and the source of David. He is both son and creator. And so he is the one who began all things. Through him all things were created. And so this is the genesis of Jesus Christ. This is where we see his earthly lineage playing out, but he has always existed from all eternity. He's the source of all things as well. So Jesus is the beginning. He's the beginning of all things. He's also the end of all things. As we look at this passage, we see that the Numbers are, are, are 14, there's 14 generations from Abraham to David, there's 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, and then 14 uh, generations from the deportation to Babylon to Christ. Now, Matthew included 14. Why did he include 14? He could have included some others that he didn't include. He could have included some other family, family members. Why did he include 14? Uh, we don't know for sure, but one suggestion, some scholars have have suggested is that what's happening here is Matthew is in, engaging in something called gamartia. And gamartia is, what, is where the name, the letters of a name correspond to different numbers. And so, for example, if you read the book of Revelation, then the mark of the beast, and then the number of the, the Antichrist, 666, uh, that's gamartia. There were the, the letters might stand for something. Now, if you add up the numbers of David's name, you get the number 14th and G, 14, and, G, and David is actually the 14th person in this generation. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is the number seven is, is important in Scripture. Uh, we see it first in the book of Genesis where uh, God creates in six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. Uh, we see it a number of other times in, the, in, the, in regards to uh, the year of Jubilee. We see it in, the, in regards to uh, Noah where he's called to bring seven of the clean animals onto the ark. The number seven appears over and over again. And if you look at these numbers, the numbers add up to uh, six groups of, uh, of seven, which anticipates the seventh group. And so, in other words, the, the, six, the, the six sevens are kind of the, the preparation, and then we get to Christ, and he's the fulfillment, the seventh seven. We also see, at the beginning, Israel has faith but doesn't have a king. The beginning of the, the first epoch from, from Abraham to David. Then you have the, the period of the kingdom where David reigns for a time. There's other kings that reign. And then you end once again at the deportation of Babylon where once again Israel is longing for a king and then the king comes, Jesus, the final king, and enters in that final seventh, seventh. So Jesus is the beginning 
and he's the end is Revelations 1.8 says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Some of our kids have the, uh, the Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a great Bible. And uh, in the introduction to that Bible, the author, Sally Lloyd-Jones, kind of talks about this supremacy of Christ and how Jesus is the beginning and the end, how the whole story kind of leads up to him. And she says this, there are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children, comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. So again, we see in this opening section of Matthew that Jesus is the beginning and the end. He's the Genesis, the one who creates, but also the son of Abraham, the son of David, and the one who ushers in the final impact of God's uh, way of interacting with mankind. Finally, we see this. We see that Jesus is for everyone. I was looking up this week the, the most popular name um, in America. I was trying to find the most popular name. And uh, oftentimes when you, you know, kind of, if you search that into Google, what will come up is kind of like the most popular name in 2022. I'm not sure what that is. Um, but I was trying to look at kind of what is the most popular name in our country generally, like the most number of people that are named a certain name. And so I found information uh, from Social Security Administration over the last hundred years, and it found that the most popular name is the name James. Um, and there's a couple others that are pretty close to it, like Michael, I think maybe John. But the number one name over the last hundred years is James. Now, thinking about names, um, so, you know, a few years ago when uh, my wife and I were pregnant with Paul, uh, we were thinking about names. You know, and we went through you know, a number of different possibilities, but one possibility that never crossed our mind, didn't even think about, is we never thought about calling him Jesus. And it just, it was off limits. And for most, most of us it is. There's some people who, who do do that. But for most of us, the name Jesus is kind of off limits. It's a name that's, you know, like, unlike any other name. And so as Christians, Jesus is off limits. And I've always kind of thought of, you know, the name of Jesus being kind of rare and kind of like that in the ancient world. That wasn't the case. In fact, Jesus was kind of one of the most popular names in Judaism. It was kind of like the James of today. It was an incredibly popular name. There were potentially hundreds of Jesuses during the time of Jesus. It's an incredible thing to think about when we think about, you know, Jesus and who he was. But I think this might be significant because, you know, you think about Jesus coming to the earth and he could have been called any name. You know, and you think about God putting skin on and becoming a human being. And you would think that he would be named something that was just, you know, completely unique. And yet he chooses to become a name that's ordinary, common. I think that shows us that Jesus is an ordinary Savior. He's a Savior for all of us. He's a Savior for all mankind. 
It's Isaiah 53, 2 says this, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was an ordinary Savior. But there's something else that's interesting in this genealogy, and that's the people that Matthew chooses to include. If you're going to write a, ge a kingly genealogy, especially in the ancient world, uh, you would tend to highlight people who were powerful and important and maybe neglect, maybe even cut out completely people who were kind of illegitimate or of ill repute. And yet, it seems almost like in this passage, Matthew is going out of his way to make Jesus look bad. I mean, that's the way it seems. Because he includes people that he wouldn't have to include under any normal circumstance. Look at the people he includes. He includes five women. It wasn't unheard of for women to be included in genealogies, but he does it for no particular reason. He includes Gentiles, Ruth and Rahab. And just as an aside, we don't, we're not 100% sure this is the same Rahab as the Israelites encountered in Jericho. Probably was. Don't know for sure. But Gentiles, people from the, from the nations. And in, in Israel's history, you think about the time of the conquest and um, they were entering into the land of Canaan, and Canaan was kind of the enemy. Uh, and they were told not to intermarry with them, not to take their gods, not to become like them. And yet we see in this passage that the nations are in God's plan, that God is, is going to redeem Canaanites, people who were, who were cast off, people who were not a part of God's people. And so Gentiles are included in the plan of God. And then we have people of kind of ill repute, questionable morals. We have Bathsheba. And she's not even mentioned in this passage. Of course, she had adultery with, with King David. Uh, that's something, you know, he didn't have to include that. He could have just said Rehoboam. He didn't have to include the wife of Uriah. But he includes that. We see, you know, Rahab, assuming it was the same Rahab, she was a prostitute. We have Tamar, who uh, pretended to be a prostitute so that her father-in-law uh, would have a child with her. You have people of incredibly questionable morals. And then you have the kings. You have some kings like Uzziah and Hezekiah and David who were, you know, more or less served God and were good kings. And then you have other kings like Ahaz and who, like Joram and Abijah, Rehoboam. Uh, even Solomon, to some extent, who really did some terrible things, didn't follow after the Lord. And then you get to the final section from the, the, the time in Babylon to Christ, and we have all these names that we don't really know hardly anything about. You know, that was kind of the silent era in Scripture, so we don't really know much about them. And so as we look at this genealogy as a whole, we see that in this genealogy, there are foreigners, misfits, sinners, and broken people. And I think it's fitting that that would be the lineage of Christ because that's the kind of people he came to save. Sinners, misfits, foreigners, those who are broken. So he's a savior who's for everyone. There's a rabbi named Elliot Kuklaw, and he once described this uh, woman who had a severe brain injury. And uh, often she would fall to the ground and have trouble walking. And as soon as she would fall to the ground, people would rush around and, and try to help her back up. But she didn't like that. And she told Rabbi Kukla this. She said, I think people rush to help me up because they're so uncomfortable with seeing an adult lying on the floor. But what I really need is for someone to get down on the ground with me. And I think that's what we all need. 
We needed someone to become like us. And so Jesus took the form of a human being. And he eventually went to the cross, became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so we see in his line, we see misfits, sinners, foreigners, to show that Jesus is for all of us. Because we're all broken, we're all in need of grace. So, so, so again, Matthew so, shows that Jesus is uniquely qualified. Jesus is the beginning and the end. Jesus is for everyone. And then finally, he shows us, in essence, that Jesus is uniquely worthy. Jesus is uniquely worthy of all of our worship, all of our praise, all of our honor. And my hope today is that we would fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. My prayer is that we would fix our eyes on him today. But so, so often and so easy it is to fix our eyes on other things. Years ago in 2004, there was a man by the name of Matt Emmons, and uh, he was getting ready to win a gold medal. Um, the competition he was engaging in, it was a 50-meter, three-position rifle event. And on the first two shots, he did incredibly well. And so all he had to do was kind of get an average shot for his last shot. His average shot was like 8.1, a uh, score of 8.1. So he didn't have to hit the bullseye. He didn't have to do anything kind of uh, fantastic. He just had to do what he was accustomed to doing, just got to get it close. So he lines up to fire, and he fires and gets it close to the bullseye. But there was one problem. He was aiming at the wrong target. He made a rare mistake. He was, he was on lane two, and he aimed at the target on lane three. This great shot that he had ended up with a score of zero. He went from winning a gold medal to ending up in eighth place. Doesn't matter how accurate, accurate you are if you're aiming at the wrong target. If we're aiming at the wrong thing, it doesn't matter how much effort we put into it, we're off track. If anything other than obeying and knowing Christ is a target as believers, we're off track. Philippians 3, 8, Paul says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. William Carey was a great missionary to India, and he was on his deathbed. And he was visited by a young man by the name of Alexander Duff. He greatly admired the missionary, came to see him before he died, waited a long time and spent a long time with him. And uh, Carey asked Duff to pray with him. Following the prayer, Duff went to leave, and Carey's feeble voice cried out and said, Mr. Duff, you've been speaking about Dr. Carey. Dr. Carey, when I'm gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey. Speak about Dr. Carey's Savior. That was a man who was on target, was focused on Christ. And as we close, I'd like to close with a prayer from a, a mystic of uh, a medieval times named Julian of Norwich. May this be our prayer. May this be our heart. God of your goodness, give me yourself. For you are sufficient for me. I cannot properly ask anything less to be worthy of you. If I were to ask less, I should always be in want. And you alone do I have all. I saw that he, our Lord, is everything that we know to be good and helpful. 
In his love, he clothes us and folds us and embraces us. That tender love completely surrounds us, never to leave us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your incredible, unmatchless love for us, Lord. We thank you that you are uniquely qualified both to identify with us. Lord, we know that you know what we're going through. You know our trials. You know our struggles. You know what it's like to be like us. But you're also qualified to save us, to change us, to make us new. Lord, we thank you for becoming a human being. We thank you that you're the beginning and the end. We thank you that we don't have to worry how the story is going to end because we know that it ends with you on the throne. Lord, we thank you that you came for all of us, those of us who are broken, which is all of us, those of us who are confused, those of us who are depressed, those of us who are ensnared in sin, those of us who maybe don't fit into the world's standards. You came for all of us and you offer us life. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you. Help us to never move beyond your cross, your gospel, your resurrection. May it be the song of our hearts. May it move us to repentance. May it move us to love with the love that you've loved us with. Lord, most of all, as I said at the beginning, I pray that we would be in awe of you that your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts so that we see that you as you are, as we see you that we're changed. In Christ's name I pray.